So confirmation class starts today, as we mentioned a little while ago. And as I was preparing the lessons uh, and getting things ready over the last couple of weeks, I was looking at the lesson about spiritual gifts, and I noticed something. Status is not a spiritual gift. Can you believe that? Status is not a spiritual gift. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 lists some of the spiritual gifts, such as wisdom and healing, prophecy and discernment, but not status. It wasn't in the list, didn't make the cut. Unlike uh, spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts are given to individuals, but they're meant to build up the community, whereas status is merely one's place in a community. And unlike spiritual gifts, which are given by the grace of God, status is something that we usually have to earn. Sometimes we have to fight for, even chase. And in our scripture today, that's what we see the disciples doing. They're chasing status. Let's look at uh, chapter 10 of the Gospel of Mark, verses 35 to 45. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant to us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles... Those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them, but it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave to all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word for God's people. Thanks be to God. So James and John knew that Jesus was the Messiah. And as they made their way into Jerusalem, they were expecting him to come into great power. And they wanted to secure their place in God's kingdom. I think their first mistake was how they approached Jesus. We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I don't really remember that strategy in classic books like Getting to Yes or How to Win Friends and Influence People. I often have to ask people to do things and to just go up to them and say, hey, I want you to do for me whatever I ask. Doesn't really seem like a winning strategy. One of the prominent themes in the Gospel of Mark is the failure of the disciples. In this gospel, they are truly the disciples. I had a professor who said that the only thing that the disciples do right in the Gospel of Mark is to leave their nets and follow Jesus. After that, everything they do is wrong. <laughs> they just keep failing time after time. 
They fail to grasp who Jesus is, what he wants of them, and ultimately what he came to do. Jesus predicts his death three times in this gospel, and each time they fail to grasp the significance of his suffering. First, in chapter 8, Peter rebukes Jesus, prompting Jesus to say, Get behind me, Satan. And then the second time, they completely miss the point, and they begin arguing among themselves about who is the greatest. And then the third time in our scripture today. But we shouldn't be too hard on the disciples. For one thing, their request may have been misguided, but it does demonstrate that they had complete faith in Jesus' ability to, to um, make his kingdom. It just wasn't the kind of kingdom that they had in mind. They were off about that. You see, they were trying to secure their place, their part in a tiny picture. And they failed to see the big picture of God's plan of salvation for all. It's like the difference between looking through a microscope and a telescope. When you look through a microscope, everything is smaller than you. You are the biggest object, and you see everything through the lens of how it relates to you. Versus when we look through a telescope, we can see the big picture. It comes into focus, and you're looking at something much bigger than yourself. So how do you look at life? Through a microscope or a telescope? For some decisions that you have to make for yourself, for your family, a microscope may be exactly what you need. But when you're part of a larger group, like a church, like the body of Christ, we need the telescope view. Because it may no longer be about what is best for you, but what is best for the body. In the last part of the scripture, verses 41 to 45, Jesus is telling the disciples that it's not about them. He emphasizes the importance of humility and service. In so many words, he's telling them that instead of climbing the ladder to greatness, we have to climb down the ladder to serve, to be humble. In other words, God said, get over yourself. Um, this past Thursday night, I slept here for Family Promise as an overnight host. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with Family Promise, it's a ministry we take part here in the church. It's a national organization, and we support the local chapter. Uh, it's a really great ministry that helps support families with children who are temporarily homeless. And so these families may be in the program for months at a time, and they spend their nights um, at churches, a different church every week, and then they get up very early in the morning to go to the day center, and then from there they go to work or they go to school or they take classes there at the day center, all as a part of making their lives better. Now, the overnight host job is probably one of the easiest jobs of the week because you show up in the evening, the families are usually already settled down for the night, and you just have to sleep there to make sure that you're on the the property in case something happens, and then everybody gets up very early in the morning and goes home. No big deal, right? 
But y'all, I could not sleep. <laughs> and I think I've shared with you before that when I'm tired, I'm not super pleasant. <laughs> and so I'm laying there, and our coordinators do everything possible to make the overnight host stay a pleasant one. I didn't lack anything. But you know how it is when you're not in your own bed. There's unfamiliar noises. There's light coming through the window. You can't get comfortable. I was worried about oversleeping. All these little things that just made it hard to sleep. I'm not sure I got more than a couple hours. And in the early morning as I'm laying there kind of grumpy because I didn't get any sleep, I realized that that might be a good example for this sermon. Because I thought to myself, Leanne, get over yourself. It's not about you. It's about these families. They do this all the time. They sleep in makeshift bedrooms, on air mattresses, at a different place every week, all to make their lives better. And as a church, we are supporting them. We are living out our mission to go and to connect and to help them grow. And that's the big picture. See, with the microscope view, it was just all about me and how I felt and how I thought I'd felt the next day and not being able to sleep. But at the end of it, I got to go home and take a nap in my warm, comfy bed. The bigger picture makes it about who we're serving and why. So the microscope might make an experience all about us, our comforts, our preferences, while the telescope helps us to see how we can show the love of Jesus to others. There's a lot of decisions that, as a church body, we have made over the last 35 years. There's a lot more decisions that we'll need to make in the coming years. And as we make them, we should keep that telescope view. How can we reach people and families in this community? That's a telescope question. Microscope questions are, what do we want? What will make us the most comfortable? What have we always done? And those kinds of questions aren't going to help us build the kingdom of God. They might make us feel better in the short term, but they won't help the body of Christ. There's a book called Transformational Church, and the studies in that book show that nine out of ten churches are in decline. Nine out of ten. And that was before the pandemic, where experts suggest that in any given congregation, as much as 30% of a congregation may not return. So all the churches that were not in decline had a few things in common. And one of them was an outward focus. They were focused on the community around them, on their mission field, rather than their personal comforts and desires. A transformational church says, get over yourself. Don't make it about you. Make it about them. Make it about those who have not experienced the love of God. Make it about those who have not yet heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Make it about serving families in crisis or feeding hungry children or helping those who are lost. We are called to go and tell what Christ has done for us. We are called to go out and say, come and see what God is doing here. And I know that's hard sometimes because we have to make ourselves vulnerable. We might worry that people aren't going to see what we see when they get here. We might be pretty comfortable here, and if we bring in new people, that's kind of a change, and that's a little scary. It's hard to invite people into our circle sometimes. But the mission is greater than all of our individual selves. In the book of Philippians, chapter 2, Paul writes about a self-emptying that has to happen for true discipleship, a giving away of ourselves in order to serve others. It's a model of Christ that we are to imitate. This is Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Another one of the really unique aspects of the Gospel of Mark is something called the messianic secret. It's a term that Bible scholars use to describe this technique that the author used to intentionally conceal the true identity of Christ. Jesus repeatedly tells people not to make known the healings and the miracles he performs. We see this in chapters 1, 5, 7, and 8. In chapter 8, verse 30, he tells his disciples not to tell people that he is the Messiah. God speaks twice in this gospel, confirming the divinity of Jesus. In chapter 1, only Jesus seems to hear it. And in chapter 9... When God speaks the second time, Jesus specifically tells his followers not to tell anyone what they heard until after his crucifixion. Why would the author do this? In every other gospel, people marvel at his miracles. They are impressed by his teachings. But in Mark, no one is able to grasp what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah or the Son of God until he is crucified. You see, for Mark, it's really all about the cross. Understanding Jesus begins at the cross. The cross is where the world's ideas of power and glory and status get completely turned inside out and upside down. The cross is the big picture. It's the telescope view. And that makes us really valuable. Sometimes I like to watch Antiques Roadshow. 
I know that seems like a hard left, but just stay with me. Uh, <laughs> Antiques Roadshow has been running since 1979. It's kind of like the original Pawn Stars. People find their stuff that they've had for years, and they bring it, and the appraisers identify it and value it for them. And one of the biggest finds of the show was actually right here in Texas in 2012. A man from Corpus Christi brought in this painting that he said had been hanging behind a door in his family home. The appraisers identified it as a 1904 painting by the famous Mexican artist Diego Rivera, and they valued it at a million dollars. It wasn't valuable because of where it was found, behind a door. It wasn't valuable because of who owned it. It was valuable because of who created it. And the same is true for us. We aren't valuable because of our perceived status, our education, our talents, or anything that we do. We are valuable because we are created by God. We're valuable because we were bought on a cross by the Son of Man who came to serve us all and to show us how to serve. I wanted to end today with the Wesleyan Covenant Prayer. Um, John Wesley wrote it as a way to illustrate true discipleship, what it really means to live as Jesus did, emptying oneself and serving others. He asked his congregations to say it at the beginning of each new year as a way to recommit themselves to the, a life of service. Um, the words that we're going to say today are a little updated from the original uh, Wesleyan, uh, but I'd ask for you to say it with me as we pray. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you, praised for you or criticized for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now, O oh wonderful and holy God, Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven. Amen.